0: I was missing the obvious. Several weeks ago I was standing at our kitchen sink and we have a soap dispenser built into the basin there. There's a reservoir for the soap and I was going to wash my hands so I pushed the dispenser and nothing came out. So I did what most people do. I just pushed harder and still nothing came out. And I was framing on that dispenser and Claire walked in the kitchen and graciously didn't say a word. She opened the cabinet and got a a bottle of refill soap, and set it down and walked out. I was missing the obvious. The obvious was there was no soap. Well, in our text this morning, we're going to be reminded of a sermon that Stephen preached in the first century. He was a deacon in the early church, and he is relating to the Jewish religious leaders that they were missing the obvious in their rejection of Christ, they were missing what it's all about. And so we want to study this sermon together. Look with me at Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. We're going to begin reading in verse 44. We started studying his sermon last week. And the title of the sermon was, It's All About Jesus. So this is, It's All About Jesus, part 2. So we studied points 1 through For last week, this morning, we're going to look at uh, point five, six, seven, and eight. You'll notice there's a point nine in your notes. We're not going to get there, so just don't get you OCD folks. We're not going to fill out those blanks, all right? We won't make it this morning, but next week we will. So next week will be, it's all about Jesus, part three. And the reason I didn't get there is because point nine is a sermon in and of itself. So come back next week, we're going to talk about Uh, point number nine, and I can't wait to preach that to you. But this morning we're going to look at points five through eight. We're going to begin reading in Acts chapter 7, verse 44. Now before uh, we stand and read and before uh, we pray together, I want to just say a quick word about what's going on in our world. Uh, I'm sure you've heard by this time of the massive earthquake that took place in Nepal. Uh, The last report I read uh, was that there are over 2,000 people that have died as a result of that earthquake? And, you know, we have people uh, in that region that our convention of churches, Baptist churches, have sent there to plant their lives and proclaim the gospel. And uh, what I've heard is all those people are well. We have a family from our church that's in South Asia that we sent out. And they're there right now, and they are uh, are some distance away from Nepal, but they did feel, feel the earthquake and the tremors and the major aftershock that came uh, this morning. But they're okay, but they did feel that earthquake. But there is uh, just catastrophic damage, catastrophic loss of life. So we're going to pray in just a minute, and we're going to pray for the people of Nepal and South Asia and that area, the Himalayan region that are affected by that earthquake. And we're going to pray that this would be just a an open door for uh, Christians that live in that area to be able to point people to hope because right now people are grieving and are hopeless and uh, this would be a just a a, a, a powerful um, time for them to point people to the good news, the hope we have in Jesus Christ. So pray for the Christians uh, that are living in that area. Pray for the relief agencies, for the governments, the, the, the leadership that they would have wisdom to know what to do to um, prevent any further loss of life and to um, help people that uh, are in desperate need. So just pray. For that region. And if you're wanting to help in a financial way, uh, we recommend two relief agencies for you. The first is Baptist Global Response. Baptist Global Response. They work with our International Mission Board to uh, help people uh, in uh, crises like the one going on in that area. And so you can go to Google and type in Baptist Global Response, and it'll bring up a website. Click on it, and there'll be some information on that webpage as to how you can give directly and immediately to help provide supplies food and water and other instrumental items that people will need in that area. So we recommend Baptist Global Response. They're on the ground, they're, they're mobilized, and they will be helping people in Jesus' name. We also recommend Samaritan's Purse, uh, another uh, wonderful humanitarian organization that is focused on the gospel. And so as they help people, they will be uh, helping people in the name of Jesus, pointing people to Jesus Christ. And so we recommend those two options for you if you want to give to help with the crisis uh, in in that area. So just keep that in mind. We want to read, we want to pray for Nepal in that area in just a moment. But Look with me in Acts chapter 7, verse 44. I'd like to ask you if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 7, verse 44. Stephen here in the middle of his sermon preaching says, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we are so grateful, Lord, for the Just the privilege, Lord, of corporate worship. Lord, that we gather as a faith family and we sing praises to you. Lord, we we proclaim your faithfulness. Lord, never, never, never have we walked alone. You are with us. You'll never leave us. You'll never forsake us. We can count on your faithfulness every day of our lives because you do not change. And we are grateful, Lord, for those realities. And we praise your great and matchless name. And Lord, I praise you that your presence is here with us today. You are with us in this room. You are meeting with us. You are working in us. You are working, Lord, through us today. And we pray that you would just draw near in a tangible way, Lord, that you would manifest your presence. And God, that you would move to such an extent that we would leave today knowing we have met with the living God. And so, Lord, just have your way by your word, by your spirit, applying your word to our life. Lord, have your way. Transform us today for your glory. And, Lord, we are mindful today of just the the grief, the hurt that is happening in Nepal and surrounding areas today. Lord, the, the massive loss of life, the uncertainty about the future. Lord, the hopelessness. Uh, that i 'm sure so many are experiencing today, uh, God, we ask that you would that you would move with power in this region, God that you would mobilize uh, the believers that live in that region to be uh, Lord wise to know how to help people how to how to meet needs that are all around them, and Lord, how to take advantage of the open door to just speak of the hope that is found in Jesus Christ God, I pray that that as a result of this this situation, revival would come to that region. And Lord, thousands upon thousands would be swept into your kingdom as they turn to Jesus through this. God, I pray for the relief organizations. I pray for the governments. I pray for the rescue workers. Lord, everyone, Lord, I pray that you would just help them. Lord, give them strength and wisdom as they begin to rebuild and to help people that have such... Um, such um, overwhelming need in their life. And so, God, would you just work in Nepal and work in the surrounding Himalayan region. Uh, Father, uh, would you move with glory. God, I thank you that we know that even in the midst of great natural disaster, you're in control, you're on your throne. And, Father, we pray that uh, you would move with power uh, for the sake of your name and for the sake of the gospel. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. We saw uh, last week, actually the last couple of weeks, that Stephen was a deacon in the early church in Jerusalem, and he was a a powerful, spirit-filled proclaimer of Jesus, and his preaching of Jesus got him into all sorts of trouble. As a matter of fact, the religious leaders wanted to stop him from preaching about Jesus, so they brought him before the religious authorities, and they trumped up some false charges against him and they give him a chance to answer the false charges at the beginning of chapter 7. So it's as if Stephen thinks, "Okay, I have the floor now. I think I'll preach a sermon." And he preaches this powerful sermon that traces the history of the nation of Israel. And the sermon ends with this crescendo where he 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 points to the righteous one, Jesus Christ. So the entire sermon, this history lesson if you will, all leads to Jesus. And what Stephen is trying to get across to the religious leaders is this. It's all about Jesus. Now, last week we saw the first four points of the sermon that the formation of Israel was all about Jesus. The preservation of Israel was all about Jesus. The ministry and message of Moses was all about Jesus. And the law was all about Jesus. But he continues to preach and we picked up his sermon in verse 44 and we get to point number five in this sermon. Here it is. You ready? The temple was all about Jesus. The temple was all about Jesus. Notice what he says there in Acts chapter 7 verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. So God gave Moses instructions to to design this tabernacle, this portable structure that would be a centralized place of worship for the carrying out of the sacrificial system for the nation of Israel. Every time the nation of Israel moved, they would pack up the tabernacle and they would take it with them. Well, it came about that David, during the monarchy, wanted to build a permanent structure to be a place of worship for the Jews. Look what it says in verse 45. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was, it was portable until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon, his son, who built a house for him. And so he's saying, here's the history of the temple. Tabernacle, and then Solomon built a permanent structure in uh, Jerusalem. And this temple, uh, Stephen wants him to understand, was all about Jesus. The temple was a centralized place of worship for Israel, and the setup of this temple taught spiritual truths. The way God had it designed all taught the nation of Israel very important spiritual lessons. For example, there was a holy place that that only priests could enter and there was a holy of holies that only the high priest could enter once a year and the holy place was divided from the holy of holies by a veil by a great curtain and and the lord was teaching through this setup this structure listen you cannot come to god on your own terms you can't just run into the presence of God. As a matter of fact, he set up the sacrificial system to teach that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, that innocence must die for your guilt. And so, the entire system of killing bulls and goats and calves was a was a lesson for the nation of Israel. And this sacrificial system that took place at the tabernacle and the temple didn't save anyone, but it pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ who would die for the sins of the world. So everything about the temple, the structure, everything about it, taught the nation of Israel spiritual truths. But they they missed the point when it came to the temple. Look what Stephen says in verse 48. You had this tabernacle, this temple, this rich history. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? In other words, you have this temple that you're proud of, but you need to understand that the temple does not contain God. God is bigger than the temple. The earth is his footstool. And so by focusing so much on the place, you're missing the point. If you look there in your notes, the point of the temple was not pride in a place, but worship of a person. The point of the temple was not pride in a place, hey, look how great our temple is, look how beautiful it is, look how magnificent it is. That's not the point. The point of the entire temple structure and the sacrificial system that took place at the temple was to point them to Jesus Christ. I like what John Pohlheal writes, the fulfillment of Israel's true worship is in the Messiah. And in rejecting him, they were rejecting what ultimately the temple was all about. So they're missing it. The temple is all about Jesus. And you're just proud of your building. You're proud of your structure. And you're missing that it's all about a person you are to worship. And you say, well, that was... a." Uh, first century mistake. No one makes that mistake today. Not so fast. Did you know that for many people, worship of God is more about pride in a place than it is worship of a person? It's about the aesthetics of the place they come to worship and the comfort of the place they come to worship more than it is about the person who deserves our worship. This church started brand new in 2002, and for our first few years, we were in a converted hardware store in the downtown square and we moved in it was an older building but we fixed it up as best we could with the money we had and put some rooms in there for children and preschoolers and and set up a place for worship and it was a wonderful location for us right on the downtown square lots of visibility but it was an old building during the winter when we'd have a freeze we'd have to bring in porta potties because the pipes would freeze up and so if you had to go to the bathroom you go out back and there's a porta potty right there and there's this heater in there during the winter it would come on, it was an old heater that hung from the ceiling, and it rattled. so when the heater would come on, I would have to yell at the people to, 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 so they could hear me over the heater. So it was a great place, but it was an old building. And we actually had people say, "Listen to this, people would come and visit, and they'd say this: "We like your church, we, we like what you're all about, and when you guys get a building, then we'll come and be with you." You know what they were saying? worship for me is more about a place not the person because i can tell you even though we were in an old converted hardware store it was all about jesus jesus was exalted and jesus was lifted up doesn't matter what the building is if jesus is lifted up you ought to be able to plug in and worship right and there might even be people today that would walk in a room like this as as beautiful as this facility is and say we're in a gym and by the way if you haven't noticed there are basketball goals right over there and say we're in a gym. Can you worship in a gym? Well, guess what we're doing right now? We're worshiping King Jesus. And you say, well, I want a, I want a, I want a more you know, traditional feel. I, I want a, a sanctuary-type setting. This isn't good enough for me to worship. Listen, if that's your perspective, not being ugly, but if that's your perspective, you're more about the place than the person. And you're missing the point of it all. Because Jesus is here today, right? He's the one that died for our sins. He's the one that rose from the grave. He's worthy of our worship, whether we're in a hardware store or a gym or a sanctuary. He is worthy of our praise. So stop focusing so much on the place and and fix your eyes on the person, King Jesus. Now, God may give us the, the grace of the years to build more buildings, but listen, even when we build more buildings, it won't be about the place. It's going to be about the person, the work of Jesus Christ. And by the way, if you have trouble worshipping in here, I want to take you with me to Uganda. I've worshipped in the slums of Uganda, and we were at a church, and, and they had kind of these poles, kind of pole-like structure for the walls, and there were really no walls and they had half the roof completed, this kind of metal they'd found, covered half of it, and half of it was not covered. So when it rained, you just got wet. I'm telling you, we ought to be grateful for what we have. Amen? We ought to be very grateful for what God has given to us. But here's what Steve is saying. You're so focused on the splendor and the glory and your pride in the temple, you're missing the one the temple is all about. So the temple was all about Jesus. But here's the next thing I want you to see. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is all about Jesus. Look what he says in verse 51. You stiff-necked people. This is not a feel-good sermon, is it? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Your heart hasn't been transformed. You always resist the Holy Spirit As your fathers did, so do you. Wow. Now, we believe in the doctrine, the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. We believe that there's one God that exists in essence and nature, and that one God exists in Three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and all three persons of the Godhead are co-equal and co-eternal. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. And we'll preach on that one day soon. But, but the doctrine of the Trinity states that God the Holy Spirit is a person. And God the Holy Spirit works in our lives. And he mentions here their rejection of God, the Holy Spirit. So what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, look there in your notes. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our need for a Savior, John 16, 8. He will convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. And he points us to the one true Savior. Jesus said in John 16, 13, and 14 that the Holy Spirit would would point people to Jesus, point people to him. And so as the Holy Spirit worked in the lives of the religious leaders and convicted them of their sin and pointed their hearts to Jesus, they resisted the Holy Spirit. They did not want to turn to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, you need to understand that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is still operative today. And when I was nine years old, I experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit without question. I began to sense this this unsettledness in my heart. I don't know if that's a word or not, but I, I began to feel unsettled in my heart and and, and, and began to ask spiritual questions as the Holy Spirit convicted me that I needed a Savior. And my pastor came out on a summer afternoon, and we sat at my table. And I'll never forget when he read to me the first half of Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. And all I can tell you is this. When he read that verse, the Holy Spirit absolutely gripped my heart, and I knew at that moment that I was a sinner and I needed a Savior. And I was so grateful for the second half of the verse. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And there at my dining room table in my house on a summer afternoon, the Holy Spirit squeezed my heart, showing me I was a sinner. And the Holy Spirit pointed me to the gospel, pointed me to Jesus Christ. And as a nine-year-old boy, I called upon the name of the Lord, and I was saved by His grace. I experienced the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And if you're saved this morning, it's because the Holy Spirit worked in your life to show you your need for a Savior, to draw you to the Father, and to point you to Jesus Christ. You ought to be grateful for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I want to say this. I, I don't want to sound too mystical, but I've been preaching now for a long time. And, and as, as a preacher, you can, you can sense when there's conviction in the room. There have been times I've been preaching the gospel, and the room just gets real still. You can can hear a pin drop, and everybody's just kind of extra tuned in. And you 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 can see on people's faces that they're under conviction, that the Holy Spirit is absolutely squeezing their heart, applying His Word to their life, showing them their need. And I've seen many times through the years, I've seen someone that is under deep conviction, when the invitation comes, the time to respond, just stand there in their seat. And when the service is over, they get up and walk out of the door, turning their back once again to Jesus. You know what they're doing? They're resisting the Holy Spirit. They're resisting the ministry of the Spirit who's not just trying to make them feel bad, the Holy Spirit is convicting them so that they will run to Jesus. It's a, listen, the Holy Spirit's work of conviction in your life and my life is an act of grace, is it not? If you feel uncomfortable this morning, you ought to thank God that he cares enough about you to make you feel uncomfortable. And so, Stephen wants them to understand, you're resisting the Holy Spirit. He's he's showing you your need for Jesus. He's pointing you to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But you're resisting the Holy Spirit. But there's another thing I want you to see in this sermon. I want you to see number seven, that the message of the prophets was all about Jesus. The message of the prophets was all about Jesus. Look what it says in verse 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? and they killed those who announced beforehand. Notice that. They announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And so Stephen here is very clear. He's speaking of their rejection of Christ. And by the way, one of the major themes of this sermon, as you kind of look at it from a big picture perspective, is rejection. He speaks of how Joseph's brothers rejected him. He speaks of how the people rejected Moses. He speaks of how the Jews rejected the prophets throughout the years. And now he's saying, in the same manner, you are rejecting the righteous one. You're rejecting Jesus Christ. But notice what he says about the prophets. He says, they announced beforehand of the coming of the righteous one. They spoke clearly of the, of the ministry and life of Jesus Christ. Let me say it like this. From Isaiah to Malachi, and you might add by Malachi and John the Baptist. From Isaiah to Malachi and John the Baptist, the message of the prophets was that the Messiah would come to redeem sinners as a suffering servant. So if you read the Bible, read the Old Testament, there's a consistent message throughout. There's these little... Little snapshots of Jesus all throughout the Bible. And when you see how all of those prophecies culminate in the person and work of Jesus, it is breathtaking. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't feel like I've gotten my money's worth at a movie if I miss the previews. I want to be in the seat with my popcorn before the first preview comes on. I think that's part of the movie. Now, Claire, she could come in 10 minutes late to the movie and no big deal, right? You know, so, so anyway, I, I love the previews. I, I want to see them, or I don't feel like I've gotten my money's worth. Previews, trailers, are just snapshots. You don't get the full picture, but they're telling you what's coming, right? To, to whet your appetite, to get you excited about. The, the full thing, the full movie. Well, the prophets were given all of these previews throughout the Old Testament, all these trailers about Jesus. And when you see all of those fulfilled in Jesus Christ, in the Gospels, it is incredible. And Stephen's saying, listen, if you would just listen, the prophets have been telling you all about Jesus But there's a final thing I want you to see this morning. We're not going to get to point nine. We'll do that next week. But point number eight, we need to understand that persecution for Christians is all about Jesus. Persecution for Christians is all about Jesus. Notice what the Bible says there in verse 54. When they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. How do you know if someone's mad at you? if they're grinding their teeth at you, they're really upset. They're really upset. If you look in your notes, when Stephen's message reaches a crescendo by pointing out their rejection of Jesus, the religious leaders become enraged. They're just enraged that he would mention the righteous one, that he would mention Jesus Christ. Now, they'd heard him out the entire sermon. It's a long sermon preaching about the the history of Israel. But when he mentioned Jesus... That's when they fly off the handle. That's when they grind their teeth. That's when they become enraged. That's when they start looking for some stones to throw. We'll get to that next week. You say, Wade, what happened? Why were they so enraged? Because Stephen had the audacity to mention Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that mentioning, proclaiming, Living for Jesus Christ will bring persecution. And here's why Jesus is a line in the sand. When you mention the name of Jesus, it's like drawing a line in the sand. Over in 1 Peter 2, verses 6 through 8, the Bible says, For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying. In Zion, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. You know what Peter's saying there? There are only two types of people in the world. Those who believe in Jesus and those who do not. Everyone in the world falls in one of those two categories. And Peter says, if you have believed in Jesus, Jesus has become your cornerstone, a solid rock that you can build your life upon. And I can tell you by way of personal testimony that since nine years of age, I've built my life on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ, and I want you to know that he is a faithful cornerstone. Amen? Faithful cornerstone. You can build your life upon him. You can experience the the supporting ministry of Christ daily in your life. But, he says, if you do not believe in Jesus, instead of Jesus being a cornerstone in your life, he becomes a rock that you stumble over and are broken over. And so for everyone in this world and for everyone in this room, Jesus is either your cornerstone or he's your stumbling block. You're in one of two categories. Jesus is a line in the sand. And as our culture becomes more and more secular, there's going to be increasing intensity, increasing ridicule, Increasing intimidation for those that name the name of Christ. You see, in our culture, it's okay to talk about God in generic terms if you want to. You can talk about God, you can talk about spirituality, you can talk about religion. That, that's fine. Just don't mention that name. Whatever you do just don't mention Jesus because our culture understands well the claims that Jesus Christ made. You see Jesus Christ made exclusive claims. Jesus said in John 14:6, "I am the way and the truth and the life." Listen, no one comes to the Father except through Me, Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved, the only way to be forgiven, the only way to have a relationship with God. And there's going to be an increasing price for us to pay if we keep sharing that message. But we can't be silent, can we? People are dying and going to hell. Jesus is their only hope. We dare not cower into silence when people need to hear the good news. But understand that it's going to be more and more difficult in our contemporary culture to talk about Jesus because when you mention Jesus, you are drawing a line in the sand and people don't like that. They don't like that at all. Years ago, I heard Adrian Rogers tell a story about a community event he attended with some dignitaries, and he was seated at a table with George Beverly Shea. You may have heard of George Beverly Shea. He's gone on to be with the Lord, but for years and years, for decades, he sang at Billy Graham Crusades. He was the one that would sing just before Billy Graham would come up and, and preach. And the dignitaries realized that George Beverly Shea was at this event. He's known all over the world. And they came up to him and said, Mr. Shea, could we ask you to sing for us today? We have some people that would love to hear you sing, How Great Thou Art. And George Beverly Shea, well, I I would be honored to sing. And then one one of the organizers of the event said this, Mr. Shea, there's a line in there about God sending his son. Would you mind not singing that verse because we feel it might be offensive to those that are gathered here for this event. And so George Beverly Shea said with with great grace, well, I'll I'll just not sing. Some time went by and and a few minutes later, the organizers of the event came back and said, Mr. Shea, we're so sorry that we ask you to sing that song and not mention that verse. We want you to sing How Great Thou Art, and we want you to sing every verse. And so this event, George Beverly Shea got up and he sang, And when I think that God, His Son not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burdens gladly bearing. He bled and died to take away my sin. And he sang that verse that lifted up the matchless name of Christ. But I believe that scenario that he experienced is going to be repeated in our culture in an ever increasing way. Where people say, hey, we're glad that you're here to share, but just don't mention Jesus. Hey, we'd love for you to pray at our event, but please don't pray in the name of Jesus. Hey, quick, just quick heads up. If you invite me to pray at your event, I'm going to pray in the name of Jesus. So if you don't want me to pray in the name of Jesus, just don't invite me. Because listen to me, that's not bravado. Listen to me, I don't know any other way to pray. The only reason I can pray and be heard by a holy God, is because Jesus died for my sins and rose from the grave and gave me a relationship with God. He's the only reason I can pray. Why would I pray and not mention Jesus? But understand, when you speak of Jesus in your workplace or in your family or you pray in the name of Jesus, it's like drawing a line in the sand. And there's going to be an increasing price to pay. But Jesus is worth any price we pay. People desperately need to hear of him. But here's the truth. Persecution for Christians is all about Jesus. That's why persecution comes. Because people don't want you to mention that name. They heard him preach all these verses. But when he mentioned the righteous one, they flew off the handle. And so here's the point of the sermon. This is the second week you've heard it. You'll hear it again next week. I believe this is the point of of Stephen's sermon to the religious leaders. The point is this. God has a rescue plan for humanity that culminates in Jesus. And to reject Jesus is to reject God's salvation. You cannot know God. You cannot be saved apart from Jesus Christ.